0: I'm here with Dr. Malabika Sarkar from the Brown School of Public Health at Brown University. Dr. Sarkar, how are you? Good, thank you very much. Happy to be here. (laughs) Last night, um, Dr. Sarkar did her event in Stern Center called the No-Do Gap, Fallacy for Scale-Up and Sustainability. I think it went very, very well, and she's here to answer some more questions for us. So my first question for you, just to give some general context, the no-do gap is defined differently depending on what context it's applied to. So in terms of public health, how do you understand it?
1: So if you think of the public health intervention, the center of any public health intervention is the community, is the people. Mm-hmm. So the intervention needs to be the people-centric, irrespective of their age, their gender, their socioeconomic status, their, uh, uh, like, you know, education status. So it includes very inclusive. The intervention needs to be inclusive, but the problem is that when we want to do an intervention, we have to keep in mind this community-centric. That communities are they are different. They're different. There should be different layers of those intervention. So the same intervention like uh, like awareness program. So if you think of the an awareness program, uh, the intervention needs to be very Much which community you are want to reach. So the way we want to communicate an education campaign for young or youth group will be very different than the man or women, uh, than the people who are living in urban area compared to the rural area or in humanitarian crises. So the no-do gap in uh, like a public health intervention is that Sometimes you design an intervention, but it's very much top down and not considering the context and the hour and mostly ignore the human centric element to that. So knowing that uh, intervention and uh, then when the policymaker will implement that, they need to adapt that intervention, that what will be the implementation strategy or service delivery mechanism based on that specific context. Uh, the specific population and the specific need. So that's the no-do gap in public health intervention.
0: And what drew you to work in implementation research and understanding the no-do gap?
1: So in the early of my career, after finishing medical school, um, I joined uh, the NGO, the BRAC, and I worked in a rural uh, district in Bangladesh, poor rural district, as a community-based physician. So that's the five years of my life working in the community and implementing the program. So when I became a researcher, I felt that there is an, I was missing something, but doing, conducting the research and publishing it is not enough. Um, I wanted, my activist heart wanted to Mm -hmm. do more. And that time I came to know about the implementation science and I started. Kind of in reading about that, and uh, one of my UNICEF colleagues in Bangladesh, um, he's the one uh, that brought attention to this implementation science. And then with him, UNICEF and uh, the School of Public Health, Black School of Public Health, we, I jointly, like you know, that started the Center for uh, of Excellence for Science of Implementation and Scale Up. And I felt that implementation research is not knowing what is the problem or what is the solution, is whether the, the solution or intervention um, is successfully implemented uh, in real-life setting, what are the bottlenecks, uh, whether it's delivered, the way it's supposed to deliver. So all these components of an, um, implementation research um, created the bridge between, re, uh, like, you know, implementer malovika and the researcher malovika. Because I'm doing the research, but I'm focusing on the intervention which are designed to improve a population health outcome, yeah.
0: yeah. Thank you. Um, and global health emphasizes the social determinants of health, I know you mentioned mm-hmm. that already. Could you give an example of social determinants that may prevent someone from seeking medical care? Simple
1: example, if you think of the maternal health, the family planning on maternal health, uh, especially in South Asia, if that service provided by a man most women would not like to accept that care. It doesn't matter how good that healthcare provider is. Uh, we have to, remember, like, you know, so this is one of the like a social determinants that cultural practice or uh, hesitant to go to a male provider can prevent women to seek care for the maternal health, the pregnancy care or delivery, or even the contraceptive. So many cases in South Asia, the community health workers are women Mm -hmm. Um, they uh, provide services uh, to the women and it increased the accessibility and also acceptability of that intervention. On the other hand, if you look at the vaccinator, that immunization, mostly are men. They give the immunization vaccination to the children. Mm -hmm. So that's also that maybe the community, I think, that feel more comfortable that a child vaccination can be given by a man who Mm -hmm. is giving those injection and it's more acceptable. So for the same person, for different healthcare, the acceptability of that particular provider could be different. And in India, they have shown that the higher caste women are less likely to receive the service from lower caste women, because there's a caste system in India. But on the other hand, if a health worker is upper caste, and goes to a lower caste household, they are more interested to take the service. so these mm-hmm. are the cultural so the like, other than the you know socio economic but the cultural perception is very important in terms of the acceptability of any intervention
0: Thank you i'm going to jump to another question. What are the commercial determinants of health because I thought that concept was really interesting
1: so the commercial if you look at our health, health that are like you know there are a lot of the commercial companies have an kind of indirect effect. If you start from the tobacco company, if you think about the sugar-based drink, like, you know, uh, the soda companies, uh, even the pharmaceutical companies, they have an influence on our health. And simple example, uh, like, you know, uh, there's a Coca-Cola vending machine um, uh, in my hotel in front of my room. Mm -hmm. And... uh, there's no water there so if I'm really thirsty that so this is like encouraging mm-hmm. you to like when you want to drink something or you really like to avoid the soda drink but a machine is there so this way you know that they can influence our behavior mm-hmm. that how uh, particularly the food behavior if you think with the market the packaged food and not lab labeling it properly that what it is there so many ways these are the commercial determinants that where the companies they they are, it's it's like you know it's valid but they want the profit they want more consumers mm-hmm. and many ways those they want to bring those consumers and they influence sometimes the policy sometimes the organization sometimes even the this institution um, like you know what food you will offer in the school like you know will it be all the vegetable the carrot and like you know broccoli or it will be pizza. Uh, so this way, they, this commercial entity determines or influence our health. And uh, that's why last few years, there's a lot of discussion of uh, on those commercial determinants of health. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Thank you. What is the process like for you starting a new research project? And what kind of corporations or organizations are like funding implementation research and reaching out to you?
1: So as an academic, uh, my experience that so there's two ways to do the research and both are kind of beyond our control to do yeah. the research because we need the fund. So one way that there are open call requests for proposal, RFP, like you know, NIH US or or UK, Mercy Gates Foundation, different organization, UNICEF, they call for proposal. Mm-hmm. And based on our expertise, we apply to those certain calls. So that's the one way to think about the research project. Secondly, sometimes organization itself contact us to do some research because when I was at, at BRAC University, BRAC as an organization, uh, they have a lot of uh, inter-public health intervention and they ask us, could you please do the research or evaluation of that program? So after we know that we need to write a, uh, a proposal, but before proposal, we think about who could be the team member, what expertise are needed for that, research project so you build a team uh, then as a researcher we formulate a research question uh, given that the scope the, both the time and fund we decide what extent what type of methodology we can use because sometimes like you know it's a six months project and you can't have a uh, the long survey or like in you know, a very complic- complex uh, methodology so based on that we design that what methodology is we to the budget, which is very, very important for any project because uh, for any research project to be successful, it's not only the technical competencies, it's also the financial competency that how can you maximize the fund, uh, like, you know, to collect the data, to analyze. And so then we develop the tool and do the collect information, the data, bring back that, like, you know, do the analysis and write report papers or... Depending on who are funding us, we had to organize a large or small dissemination workshops. So that's kind of a steps like you know, conducting your project, your research project. Yeah.
0: Thank you. And speaking of RAC, what sort of programs did you implement while you're working for the Bangladesh Rural Advancement Committee?
1: Well, that was like that's my foundation as a public health uh, professional because I yeah. do think. Uh, What I have achieved later on, whether it's my graduate degree or being a professor or associate dean or being at Brown, everything is cherry on top. So because when I joined BRAC as a young physician um, in early 90s, so I was primarily looking after maternal health program and maternal health program has several components. One was family planning that the community health worker was Uh, like you know delivering um, the contraceptive like temporary contraceptive uh, at the household level and referring women for uh, permanent contraceptive or semi-permanent contraceptive to the health facility and there's also community-based antenatal care program referring them to the hospital for delivery Uh, those who are at high risk and I was in charge of this uh, clinical maternity waiting home because I have shown yesterday that most of the women they don't go to the facility because the, the second delay, the transport. Sometimes mm-hmm. there's no paved road. Sometimes there's no transport. Um, so to kind of overcome that barrier, the brag decided to open a maternity waiting home. So we bring the uh, pregnant women who are identified as high risk, like multiple pregnancy, the women with an a bad obstetric history that had history of abortion, had history of stillbirth, uh, women with complication like you know diabetes or hypertension or preeclampsia, uh, like uh, child is in breech position or transverse position, we bring them to the waiting home which is like a half kilometer from the hospital mm-hmm. and when the labor pain starts, we refer them to the, send them to the hospital. But after few months that women started complaining. They said that, why don't you deliver? Why do we have to go to the hospital? We are coming here. So then we decided that, okay, we'll start. So I started delivering the babies and only those cases who were complicated, we sent them to the health facility. So I delivered a lot of babies in (laughs) four years um, while I was in charge. But parallel to that, I was also working with another physician uh, the uh, tuberculosis program, we have the community-based direct observed therapy. So to visit the uh, patient with tuberculosis and see the side effects of, of any drug and refer them. And the, there's an, also an acute respiratory infection uh, for control program for the children. So, so these are the more or less it was focusing that time, the maternal child health mm-hmm. and infectious disease. Because NCD was not a problem. In Mm -hmm. early 90s in Bangladesh.
0: Thank you. And what is the role in general would you say of non-government organizations like BRAC in improving global health?
1: I I, especially the BRAC has played in really I would say that complementary role um, in addressing the public health problem in Bangladesh. So in Bangladesh, the the public sector, the government um, has the program, but is uh, more uh, health facility-based. So we have primary care, secondary, tertiary care. We do have the community-based uh, worker, uh, uh, the government, the family planning worker, and the vaccinator. But you know, Bangladesh is a large country and the population is big. So each of those health worker Kind of in uh, responsible for a uh, like many household mm-hmm. couple of thousand household and a couple of thousand population, so what brac has done that they complemented the government program they created this community based uh, community health worker then each health worker is responsible for uh, was responsible for two hundred household only and they do three things one is that promoting giving education about maternal health um, and uh, then uh, preventing uh, like you know asking them to taking the child um, uh, for immunization the vaccination uh, mobilizing women to go for antenatal care and the third is like reference that emergency care if uh, there's an emergency situation they, they mobilize the community so that that women or the child can be taken to the health facility. So it complemented the government role because government did not have that soldier at the community level. So I do think that the NGOs, most of the NGOs, the community-based organization or community-based NGOs have a very good footprint in the community. They're trusted. They have connection with the community members. So what they can do, the same thing, what they have done in 80s and 90s for vaccination, maternal health. I think now they can do it for the non-communicable disease because if you think of the non-communicable disease, it's not only the clinical care, they need to be followed up, their lifestyle changes that you have to encourage them to change their lifestyle behavior and it's not possible from the health facility visit. Mm -hmm. So I think the way non-government organization can work with the government that creating those community soldiers and then complementing. Uh, the clinical component of the the private sector or the public sector mm-hmm. through community mobilization, community awareness, uh, community based like you know palliative care, community based respiratory care, community based physiotherapy, community based diabetic or hypertensive care. There they can follow up. Uh, they can encourage uh, the people like you know household members of the community to change their behavior. So there is a strong role for the NGOs, mm-hmm. but more. On the I, I think that uh, preventive and promotive care and the referral, rather than offering the clinical care, because nowadays the whole public health is so much dominated by clinicians mm-hmm. and this we need to get out of this biomedical yeah. you know framework mm-hmm. and then um, have a community centering centric or people-centric preventive and promotive care more. Uh, then only offering the prescription or the medicine yeah. to the person, yeah. Thank you.
0: And you've published, if I'm right here, 132 peer review articles. Now it's
1: 137. All right, months. all right, 137.
0: <laughs> and many of them with other researchers. So can you tell me a bit about the process of collaborating with other researchers and designing a research project with such large groups of people?
1: Yes, yeah, so... So there are two types of projects we do. That one project is maybe multi-country, multi-year, multi-phase project. So there are uh, maybe the principal investigator from USA or UK or Germany. And we are southern partners, more kind of an uh, uh, implementing partners. Um, So when you have the multi-country, multi-phase research projects, you design that way. And most of the cases what we do that. Uh, In the beginning of the project, as a consortium, we kind of agree that uh, what will be the outcome of this research project. And some of the research projects, we have a list of the papers that what we are planning to publish. And then we assigned kind of two authors, lead authors uh, for each paper. So one from maybe northern partner or from southern partner. And then those pair also work with the mid-level and then younger um, a researcher, to write that paper. But that's one way because, yeah, the second is that where I did a lot of projects as a PI, which are very much uh, Bangladesh-specific, and I received the grant from uh, local donors, um, like, you know, so that's, there's no international partner involved. So that's why we, the way, like, you know, I did as a kind of PI or the senior colleague at the team that asked, to see what is the strength of my team members. Some are good in qualitative, some quantitative, some mixed mm-hmm. method. And majority cases, if you look at my publication last eight years, I'm the uh, last author, almost all papers. So the first author, the second author, the mid-level or younger. And I had a very systematic process um, of uh, writing the paper that I paired the most junior one to do the literature review, to write the introduction, the mid-level mm-hmm maybe the methodology end result and the senior will write the discussion, which is more complex mm-hmm. and based on the contribution, we agree to be who is the first author, the second author. And, and my team, we always have done, it's a very transparent, uh, process. So we discussed and then we agreed. And, uh, if somebody doesn't work, I said, you have to be the sixth author because you did not contribute. Mm-hmm. So that was a very transparent, and almost every single member of my team has published, uh, like, you know, at least one paper. For international partnership, is a little bit different because um, if the paper sometimes is the country-specific paper, which is uh, led by the country-based PI, and then that's the same way we do. But when it's the multi-country, it's mostly decided by the the country PIs with the main PI uh, the UKRIS API, okay. it's uh, yeah, but not always it was fair to be frankly the international uh, uh, like you know multi-country papers. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but there is a collaborative process, and now there's a strong like when you write a paper, you have to specifically mention that who has contributed what. Mm-hmm. So it's more transparent now, mm-hmm. and uh, one can easily challenge you in the mid-level that I did all the work and. If you complain to a certain journal, you'll be blacklisted forever. So mm-hmm. many ways, I think last 10 years, I would say that it's very transparent and more
0: collaborative process to write a paper. Yeah, That's very helpful. Thank you. And how has COVID changed implementation research, in your opinion? I think that's COVID because like,
1: Previously, I think the assumption was uh, I don't want to generalize it, but assumption is there's a lot of problem. We felt that the health system is very fragile in low-income countries. I mean the health because there's not much resource. Uh, there is the shortage of human resource, the funding is not available. Um, there is uh, absence of good governance. So the COVID changed everything because mm-hmm. the COVID showed. Even the high-income countries are also very vulnerable mm-hmm. if there's a pandemic and, and there's also fragility in their health system. And so, and when you ha- talk about the health system and how you implement a service or how you offer a service, um, that's all about the implementation. It's about implementation strategy. It's about how do you implement or how do you deliver. And I do think that the implementation research has been kind of had the opportunity to be visible uh, post-COVID that there should be a lot of implementation research done during because implementation research is not something that you do it by yourself with researcher um, in an ivory tower. Mm-hmm. It's very much you have to do it with the implementer. It needs to be the continuous. So before implement a strategy, when you develop the implement strategy, when you deliver so the the program and it's, it also shows that there are lots to be done in the even the health facility, not in the community based intervention, but not only the primary health care, but even the tertiary care also requires a um, lot of implementation research to identify the bottlenecks of the implementation, to identify the fidelity of intervention, which is paper versus actual implementation, uh, to um, and of explore the feasibility option to see the acceptability of that intervention. And when for a long time, the acceptability term we used only from the, um, the beneficiaries or the community perspective, but there also have to be acceptability of the health worker. Mm-hmm. If I don't believe in COVID, I will not be very motivated to convince people to take the COVID vaccine. Yeah. Sometimes we ignore that. Sometimes we think that all human resources are not, they don't have their own belief, own perception, own prejudice, one, own limitation. We think that, oh, we have trained them. They will deliver the service similarly. But that's not true. The health workers also have their own, like, you know, um, culture, own belief. Mm -hmm. And that can influence your service delivery. Because if you are motivated, the way you will motivate the the person who is visiting you with more compassion, more empathy to, But other time you can do it, work. okay, do you want to take a vaccine? No, okay, thank you very much. Mm-hmm. So uh, acceptability we also need to kind of implement this research, look at the acceptability not from the client or the the community or the people perspective, but also from the health workers perspective. Do they accept the intervention you ask? You ask them to distribute the contraceptive, but if they don't believe in contraceptive, mm-hmm. they will not do, perform their job satisfying way yeah. or, you know, it will not be successful. Yeah.
0: Thank you. Um, my last question is, what or do you have any advice for college students interested in pursuing implementation research?
1: Yeah, I, I, I think that
0: a lot of solution we
1: already know. Mm-hmm. We all most of the solution in the program we do know, yeah. and but we don't do that. So number one, like you know. Secondly, when we implement the solution, the world the way it is now in twenty first century, we need to pay attention to how the intervention that uh, or services that we are delivering, how of. Opt- successful are, and what optimum level that we are delivering these services. So the implementation research are to me that definitely all public health, the, the global health or the public health, any public health professional, what is the ultimate outcome that we expect or what is the achievement and goal for our to-be public health? It's a better health, better population health either through my research or through my program or through my policy. But implemented research is something that, which can show you immediate change, which can give you the opportunity to contribute. Because in other research, you have to wait until the policymakers accept that and there's a policy formulation, the guideline. But these are the interventions already happening. Mm-hmm. So as an implementation research, I have the opportunity to do the research That while the intervention is happening, that while we are expecting the better health outcome and contribute uh, to show the weakness and the strength of that uh, implementation and help the implementers uh, to adapt it, to modify that for a better outcome. Mm -hmm. Somebody wants to do an implementation research that I would say that, like, they have to remember, like, you know, very important to me that, Health workers are also part of the community. Don't ignore them and don't uh, take it for granted that you train them and they will do whatever they're trained for. Mm-hmm. So that in implementation research or focus, it's not main focus is the health worker and the health system, the way they deliver that. And to understand what is their, like, you know, what is uh, the limit, what type of limitation they have when they deliver a service think about a solution on an intervention which has been implemented. You should not be so arrogant to go there that I know it all. Because I've seen that those health workers can um, like you know give some insight, very, like you know, ideas and insight that how to solve those problems. But most often the hierarchy and the research we go that we know the solution. Mm-hmm. So engaging particularly the frontline health workers uh, when we uh, developing uh, like, you know, um, implemented research design and what type of information we need to collect, what research question we need to address, um, we have to must work with the other uh, implementers uh, closely. Mm-hmm. Otherwise implementation research will be very theoretical paper exercise. It will not bring the expected outcome that we want. Yeah.
0: Thank you so much for all of your thoughtful answers to the questions and for your talk last night. Um, I think that wraps up our interview.
1: Thank you very much, Bella. I think it was very, very, like all the questions you asked, very interesting and very important questions.